The No Sleep Podcast keeps the New Year's spirit alive. Our New Year's resolution is to keep the horror flowing during our holiday break. And when it comes to New Year's resolutions, one that usually tops people's lists is the goal to eat healthier. And with Green Chef, it's easier, faster, and more economical to eat better. Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. I've spoken about HelloFresh in the past. Well, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. In 2023, help yourself to delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too. Eat well in the new year without sacrificing taste. Bring more flavor to your table in the new year with Green Chef's wholesome, elevated recipes. Green Chef's pre-made and pre-measured sauces, dressings, and spices make keeping a healthy lifestyle even easier. Put the time you save on meal prep towards achieving your 2023 goals. So listen, go to greenchef.com slash nosleep60, that's 6-0, and use code nosleep60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's right, go to greenchef.com slash nosleep60 and use code nosleep60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now there are discoveries to be made. I just hope you're fully braced. For the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. Tales of horror to frighten and disturb. What's that sound you hear from beneath your bed? (laughs) Join us as the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast 2023 New Year's Hiatus Episode, Volume 2. I'm your host, David Cummings. As we enjoy, or endure, the winter winds of January, we continue our holiday offering of hiatus episodes. We have two great stories for you this week, which first appeared on our Season 18 Season Pass episodes. We've given you an extended episode this week because next week we'll have a shorter episode. It'll be a small break before we have our next two volumes of our Sleepless Decompositions episodes, coming out January 22nd and 29th, respectively. And following that, yes, it's the start of Season 19. And speaking of Season 19, you'll want to make sure you listen to next week's short episode. There just may be an announcement you'll want to hear. 
So, two long stories to keep you company in the dark winter nights. Stories to chill you and give you frights. But you're here for that, so come take the leap into the depths where you'll find no sleep. In our first tale, we meet two grad students loaded with money and looking to spend it. Oh, wait, no, no, that's silly. Grad students are broke and always looking to make some cash. So when they see an ad for a research project paying top dollar for participants, they can't help but be intrigued. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Vince D'Arcangelo, once they learn that the project doesn't involve taking strange medicine or getting probed in dark places, they sign up to test a new app. Now, if only they can figure out what all that data really means. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Mick Wingert. So check the app, follow the instructions, and take good notes. But don't forget, this is an experimental design. The bulletin read in bold black lettering, Are you a starving grad student? Are there any other kinds? I tore a strip of paper with a phone number from the bottom of the flyer. I held it up and asked McKenna, Want me to grab one for you? <laughs> what century are you living in, Tyler? McKenna snapped a photo with her phone. Though the same age, she was at least a decade ahead of me when it came to technology. The rest of the flyer read, Get paid $2,000 to participate in a multi-phase research project on the impact of design on human interaction. The first phase is a one-month commitment. Select candidates may qualify for phase two testing and further compensation. There was no university seal, meaning it was an outside research project, not one within the psychology department. Too good to be true. That's almost as much money as my research stipend. I dialed the number. AGR survey and research. How can I help you? Yeah, um, we're a couple of starving grad students. What have you got for us? Orientation for the study took place in a hangar at the defunct airport on the edge of town. McKenna and I waited in a makeshift lobby until a woman in a lab coat poked her head through a black curtain and called my name. I followed her down a hallway of cubicle panels. I'm Dr. Stonebridge. I trust you completed all the necessary paperwork? Yes, I filled it out online. Excellent. Have a seat. We were in a brightly lit cubicle, with only a narrow desk and an orange plastic chair on either side of it. I sat opposite Dr. Stonebridge. She reached a hand across the table, 
palm up. Please unlock your phone and hand it over. By consulting to be in the study, we had agreed to allow them to install an app on our phone. It showed up on my home screen yesterday. A blue tile with the letters A, G, and R in white. I'd opened it, but it was just a blank page with a password box. I slid my phone over to Dr. Stonebridge. I'm setting it down here so we can both see what I'm doing. She opened the AGR app, punched in a passcode, and slid the phone back to me. Tyler, please follow the on-screen prompt to reset your password. For the next month, I'd like you to explore the app on a daily basis for at least an hour. I followed the prompts, and the screen filled with a map of North America. Multicolored pins dotted the states and provinces. Every few days, the dataset will change, so the map will look different. At the end of each of your sessions, you will complete a short questionnaire. Go ahead and click on one of the digital pins in the map. I zoomed in and picked a spot in Ohio, near where we were. A pop-up box opened, containing the following text. WF23XQ-AM-PE Is there a key to the abbreviations? No, that's for you to decipher. Your task is to pattern match. If a pattern emerges, perhaps the abbreviations will become apparent. Study the pins on the map and look for themes, trends, anything that might link them together. What about the different colors of the pins? Does that mean anything? Those are merely to help with visual identification. It makes it easier to differentiate between pins that are near each other. Easier on the eyes. Once finished, she walked me back to the lobby. McKenna returned from her own orientation about a minute later. She waved as she emerged from the curtain and smiled. (sighs) McKenna's smile. Off-centered, the right side of her mouth lifted higher than the other almost like a sneer, while the left side tapered into a swoop, at once nervous and eager, her teeth neon bright against her soft, peachy flesh. I wondered if she realized how happy it made me whenever she walked into the room. Well, that was... interesting. McKenna and I met in our first year of grad school, We were both in the social psychology program, so we ran in the same circles, had the same classes and mentors. She was studying the intergenerational effects of acculturation among immigrant families. I was studying the rates of stress and crime during second-stage gentrification in urban centers. I don't think we parked over here. The day we met in orientation, I knew I would fall in love with McKenna. I've always resisted the idea of having a romantic type. If you were to ask me what my type was, I'd tell you that I just wanted to be with someone kind who makes me laugh. And yes, that describes McKenna. I truly didn't care if she was tall or short 
blonde or redhead, white or black. Are you sure you parked here? But I'm also a scientist, and with about a dozen years of dating experience, I can't deny the evidence. Thinking back on all the women I've pursued or dated, they've tended to be short brunettes with goofy smiles and eccentric personalities. So, I admit it. Consciously or not, I have a type. And McKenna was it. Hey, Tyler. The problem was that throughout the first year of the program, she had a boyfriend. Second year, she was single, but I hadn't worked up the nerve to ask her out. Grad school is difficult enough without the added humiliation of rejection or a failed romance. But now, in our third year, I felt I had a shot. Earth to Tyler. Oh, sorry. What? Isn't that your car over there? In the other direction? Oh, Oh, right. My bad. Something on your mind? No, I... yeah, I guess. It's nothing. Hey, uh, you want to go for a beer? Sure, we can compare notes. Usual place? The usual spot was a bar just off campus that offered starving student drink specials. Two-for-one beers and a basket of stale tortilla chips on Thursday nights. We ordered the special and grabbed a table on the rooftop patio. What do you uh, think of these serial numbers on the pins? I'm not sure about the letters at the end, but I bet the first set of letters and numbers represent gender and age. Well, what makes you say that? Well, uh, this is a little embarrassing, but I recognize some of the shorthand from my dating app. She looked away from me to hide a nervous smile. I raised the pint glass to my mouth to hide a grimace. The first segment of the code is using pretty standard shorthand. For example, WF23 would be white female, 23 years old. AM45 would be Asian male, 45 years old. Do you think there's any meaning to the colors of the pins? My doctor said they're randomized, like a jitter effect, and meaningless. My guy told me they were randomly coded using M&M's. <laughs> Likely story. Ah, so we're agreed. Classic experimental misdirection. Most deaf. We raised our pints and toasted. To scientific rigor and easy money. And M&M's. A couple of rounds later, I casually asked her the name of the dating app she was using. I began studying the map that night. The AGR app had a downloadable spreadsheet that I exported to my school computer. I typed up some code in Python to run a principal component analysis. 
After that, I created some charts and made a printout of the various code patterns that emerged. The codes were segmented. Each segment started with two letters followed by a number. WF23XQ-AM-E-P AM42-BAHT-I-VS LT17Q-FM-E-PV I ran the pins through various decrypting programs, but turned up nothing. Perhaps McKenna was right about them signifying race, gender, and age. Could this be some kind of dating app? Uh, actual paper map. You really go all in? I thought we'd just compare notes on our laptops. To understand the data, I need to be able to see and touch it. I've been cross-referencing a number of open-source maps online to see if there are any matches with the AGR map. But so far, I haven't had any perfect matches. Dead end, huh? Uh, 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 I said there were no perfect matches. That means we can rule out the hypothesis, at least temporarily, that everything on the map is necessarily connected. I don't understand. Well, say each pin on the map is a hospital. Then map overlays of American hospitals should at least return a partial match. But I'm not even getting partial matches of any significance. That suggests that there is too much noise in the dataset. Perhaps the red ones are hospitals and the green ones are libraries, for example. That could be throwing off the numbers. Okay, so what do we do now? We might try isolating the patterns... I think our next step is to filter by pin color. With less noise, we might find a stronger signal with our map overlays. We might get lucky and find out what the different colors mean. But the colors are meaningless. Just random M&Ms, right? She reached for my hand, squeezed it, and then placed it back on the map to point to something else. I couldn't hear a word she said. I was dizzy with joy. The next morning, I got up early and checked my phone. There was a text from McKenna. Tyler, I got a hit last night. Meet me at the lab ASAP. When I arrived at the lab... She had the map from the night before spread out on the table where we held our weekly lab meetings. A number of lab assistants and other grad students gathered around her. On the map, a route was marked in pink. It stretched from the Pacific Northwest down through Utah, Colorado, and eventually ending in Florida. Are you ready for this? I'm not sure you are. It's going to blow your mind. <laughs> okay, okay. Hit me. It's a cookbook. What? Wait. <laughs> Just kidding. Actually, it's something even darker. This line right here is a match with Ted Bundy's murder route. 
You're just messing with me again. Seriously. Everything matches up with the green-colored pins. Wow. That's... wow. So, what are our next steps? I'll search for matches on the other routes. Meanwhile, see if you can decipher any of the coded information now that we know what these locations signify. It didn't take me long to accept McKenna's hypothesis. My initial research confirmed that the first segment of each pin number represented the ethnicity, gender, and age of Bundy's victims. With each match, I was able to learn more about the victims and cross-reference their personal details with the coded information in the pins. Eventually, I determined that the X stood for sex worker, and Q was a catch-all for the LGBTQ community. I couldn't account for everything in the codes, but I wrote up a key with what I had and showed it to McKenna the next day. Great work. She hugged me, and I thought I might melt. Any headway on the other segments? Uh, no, not yet. In some cases, letters are repeated from the first segment, but I'm pretty sure the meaning changes. An A in the first segment means something different than an A in the second segment, and so on. I'll keep working, though. She called me later that night. You're not going to believe this. I've also matched routes for John Wayne Gacy and Henry Lee Lucas. And I'm pretty sure I'll find others. What the fuck kind of study is this? This is pretty dark. I emailed you the pin data. See what you can find out and we'll compare notes. I added the new information to the spreadsheet I'd made for the Bundy route. Then I compiled information on each of the victims and entered them into a separate data set. I analyzed them against the abbreviations using different models. It took a week of coding and data shaping, but I theorized that the second segment related to the manner of death and other abuses. R stood for rape or sexual assault. B stood for bludgeoned or beaten to death. I thought C stood for choking, but it didn't match up 100%. The following week, we met for lunch in the school cafeteria. We sat on the same side of the table so that we could look at her laptop. Our legs were nearly touching. Uh... What do you, uh, make of the sea? Well, it's definitely not for choking. She ran a hand through her hair, pulling it back from her face. Her eyes had darkened from lack of sleep, and her face paled slightly. But she was all the more beautiful for it. Even gauntness agreed with her. Is there an S anywhere? Like... S for strangling? No. I expected there to be an S for stabbing, but strangling would work too. Or maybe even for suffocation. That's it. Suffocation. But there aren't any S's. Right. Well, 
What's another way to describe someone running out of breath? I shrugged my shoulders. Then she filtered on just the pins for victims who were strangled to death. That's it. They all have an A. Asphyxiation. The A stands for asphyxiation. For all our progress in the first and second parts, we weren't able to decode the third segment by the end of the month. We went back to the airport hangar to meet with the research group. Once again, we were separated, and I met with Dr. Stonebridge alone in a brightly lit cubicle. Excellent work. You correctly figured out what we were mapping and decoded much of the first two segments. Can you tell me what the third segment represents? That's an excellent question, and segues us into the next phase of the study. Based on your performance in phase one, you have qualified to participate in the next stage. I hesitated, though I don't know why. The project was fun, and if phase two paid even half as well as the first, it was a no-brainer. And it could mean more detective work with McKenna. Um... How long does it last? It's another four weeks, same as the first. However, the compensation doubles for this stage. Doubles? I recalled McKenna's words when we first saw the flyer for the study more than a month ago. Too good to be true. But as a grad student, I mean, how could I turn down this kind of money? I'm in. She opened up a folder on the desk and removed some papers. Excellent. Please read these over and sign. As you may have guessed, we are doing research on a web application. Phase one was very general, but from here forward, you will have access to proprietary information. This is a non-disclosure agreement stating that you won't reveal anything that you learn or think you've learned about the app. The NDA should probably have been a red flag, but that didn't occur to me at the time. What did I care about apps? I used my phone for calls, texts, and very occasionally photos. I wasn't glued to the screen the way McKenna was. I believed that the more time you spent on social media was less time you spent living. But I was happy to beta test for what they were paying. I signed the papers. I've just sent you the update. You will be able to access the new content by the time you get home. I can't believe you signed up for phase two. I don't think that's a good idea. Wait, didn't you... You, you didn't sign up? I thought we'd be doing it together. Hell no. Don't you think the whole thing is suspicious? And more than a little creepy? I gave her a sideways glance, then started the car. 
mysterious, sure, but I wouldn't say suspicious. Seriously? It's obviously product testing for a GPS-based tech startup. You know how these companies are. They mine personal data to sell to third parties all over the world. They collaborate with governments to spy on their own citizens. I don't know. We get some of our funding from the NSF. All research involves withholding information from the subjects. How is this any different from what we're doing? Well, there's the money involved. We're slaving away in the lab, giving sophomores extra credit or a meal swipe to be in our studies. They offer this crazy amount of money and ask us to sign an NDA. You don't see the difference? We stopped at a traffic light that had just turned red. I had planned on asking McKenna to go for a beer afterward. Instead, I dropped her off at her car in the university parking lot. See you Monday. That night I typed McKenna Delaport into an image search and found a number of photos posted online. She certainly loved her social media. The first pic I found was her university headshot in which she was wearing dark-rimmed glasses, her dark hair pulled back from her ears. The bottom of the photo cut off just as the milky skin of her neck appeared, an accidental burlesque. The second photo was from her LinkedIn profile. This shot, also framed from the shoulders up, was taken for a psychology conference she attended last year. The third photograph was of her at her sister's wedding. This was easily the shot that best captured her personality. She looks stunning in a pink dress, thrusting a hip toward the lens and sticking out her tongue for the camera. Playful, silly, unintentionally sexy, nerd goddess. That was McKenna. There was an intimacy to this last photo that made me squirm. It was a very personal image, from a family gathering I hadn't been invited to attend. It was the kind of photo that I never would have seen in prior decades. It felt invasive to stare at it, but I reminded myself that I wasn't doing anything illegal. It was a public image. I didn't hack anybody. It wasn't stalking. It wasn't any different from staring at a billboard that you pass on the highway. After all, she posted it, and there weren't any legal or ethical restrictions on personal use. I downloaded many of the images to a local folder in case they were ever taken down. My own personal photo album of McKenna. I closed the browser and went back to the AGR dataset, but I couldn't get her out of my head. This was our project. This was supposed to be the thing that finally brought us together. But here I was, working on the data alone, while she was meeting other men online. Frustrated, I closed out the data set and opened the dating app she told me she used. I created an account. I'd never used a dating app before, so I wasn't sure how it worked. I'd assumed that I would just type McKenna Delaporte into a search box and go, but that wasn't the case. 
First, I had to complete a personality profile. Submit. Then, images of women popped onto the screen. I scrolled through the photos, wondering if they were randomly selected. If so, I might scroll all day and never come across McKenna. To increase my chances of a match, I went to my interests tab and added some of what I knew to be McKenna's favorite activities. Horse riding, reading by the lake, and foods, sushi, boxed macaroni and cheese. I was about to enter in my educational background when I had my eureka moment. The data set for phase two. I understood what it meant now. Instead of thinking about it as raw data, think of it like a dating app. After a few hours of internet research, I'd solved phase two. Although the findings were strange. My program proved it was a list of suspects in active homicide investigations. What the fuck is this? Spill it. What did you want to tell me? The AGR app is crowdsourcing detective work. Huh? How does that work? The app matches a constellation of interests, activities, and physical features against a bank of suspect profiles. It's going to make someone in Silicon Valley very wealthy. How did you figure it out? I should have been prepared for this question. Of course, she would ask that. And I couldn't tell her that the solution had come to me while trolling on her dating app. After a few ums and wells, I blurted out, SEO. SEO? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, basic uh, principles of search engine optimization. It pretty much clicked into place once I started to think of the collected variables as keywords. Impressive. Uh, look, Tyler. I also wanted to say that I'm sorry about the other day. I was upset and I didn't have the right to attack you for choosing to continue in the study. Clearly it was the right call. Look at you, you figured it out. Oh, don't worry about it. No way. Let's say I make it up to you by buying you a beer after class sometime this week. I clenched my jaw to keep from smiling too wide. But it was a losing cause. I was a grinning idiot. That sounds great. How about tonight? <laughs> Sorry, can't tonight. Oh, paper due? No, I've got a first date. A guy from my app. I stabbed at my salad and swallowed my thoughts. McKenna didn't notice. She had picked up her phone and was scrolling through the app and smiling. Oh, Tyler, I think you'll like him. We've been texting all week and I'm feeling optimistic about him. He's also a grad student, studying 
At first, I tuned out her description of him. Why did I care about this great new guy she met? But as she went on, a spark of recognition hit. Perhaps it was the cadence of her descriptors, or just the abstract way we describe people we don't know yet. I realized McKenna wasn't actually describing her online date. She was declaring a wish list of what she wanted him to be. Ambitious, hardworking, positive, pro-social. Maybe he was these things, and maybe he wasn't. These weren't traits so much as possibilities. We create strangers as much as they reveal themselves to us. It's crazy to think how similar our undergrad research was, especially considering where he went to school. And that just made me depressed. The perfect guy could be sitting right across from her, and she might never realize it due to a faulty hypothesis. She didn't know me at all, really. He suggested we guess what each other might like based on our profiles and surprise each other. I'm thinking Mexican food. Or maybe Japanese? I nodded politely and was hoping she'd just let the issue die. Would you like to see his profile picture? I gotta go. Um, I'll see you in the lab. Tyler, wait. You haven't even finished your... I went straight to my office and logged into the dating app. I updated my profile once more. I squeezed the keywords ambitious and hardworking into my employment background. I added positive and pro-social to my personal description and clicked save. I was determined to figure out the algorithm so that McKenna and I would be a match. That night, after five edits to my profile and eight beers in, I finally found her. McKenna Delaporte. Common interests. 72% match. Education? 98% match. Employment? 85% match. I'd solved the app's algorithm. McKenna and I... Were compatible. A text message with a pushpin graphic popped up on my screen. It read, Looks like a good match. Would you like to poke this person to start a conversation? I clicked no and closed the app. To keep my mind off McKenna, I threw myself into the AGR dataset. I called in sick to the lab and skipped classes for the rest of the week. I'd unlocked more profiles, more maps, and the deeper I got into AGR, the more proficient I became at identifying suspects. It was so much like the dating app, I thought. The way McKenna described her date in keywords was exactly the way I used keywords to match suspects in AGR. But there was something bizarre about this new batch of profiles I had received from Dr. Stonebridge. I was able to identify the people, 
but they were no longer victims or suspects of violent crime. They just seemed to be random people, folks from towns all across America. Nothing remarkable. Obviously, this was the start of a new phase of the study. But what was the connection? I noticed there were tags with each profile, but unlike in the other phases, there was no interface to connect them. Suspicious, I clicked on my dev tools to see if I could inspect the elements of the AGR app. It was a long shot that I'd find anything, but it was worth a look. Thankfully, someone at AGR must have screwed up a setting, because I was able to unlock the source code. Or was that intentional? Did they want us to find the source code? Either way, I downloaded the script to my cloud drive and opened it in a text editor on my laptop. I gave myself a migraine searching through the foreign-looking text, but eventually I found it. A small, seemingly insignificant bit of code that had been commented out. I converted it into executable code and rendered the script. <sighs> it worked, to my surprise. And to my horror. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But once I'd come to terms with it, I called the FBI. Of course, agents found the airport hangar empty when they arrived. There was no evidence that a Dr. Stonebridge had ever ushered study participants through a maze of curtains and cubicles. No banks of computers, no waiting room. The AGR app had been wiped from my phone remotely. A search for AGR on the web revealed nothing. And though there are plenty of doctors named Stonebridge in the world, there aren't any that match the person that I had met. I explained it all to an FBI agent named Gomez. That's not surprising. Organizations like this usually operate on the dark web, not on the surface. So... You'll be able to find them there? <laughs> no, not likely. They've probably got a hundred fake company names and profiles already in circulation. Looks like they've taken this one down already. But can't you trace all the shell companies back to the source? You're thinking of the movies. The fantasy is that these companies are like dominoes. You take one down and the others fall. But in reality, they're like tentacles cut one off and move on to the next, but you never get closer to the source. But how did they know I'd gone to the FBI? They probably didn't know that. Not exactly. They likely had an alert set up in case someone accessed the source code. They probably shut down operations and wiped all prints from the hangar before you'd even figured out what you'd stumbled on. And that was the end of that. No more study, no more money. 
All I had left was the glory of having solved the awful mystery of AGR. It was a dating app, you might say. My theory was that it was designed for predators to find potential victims, allowing them to search by physical attributes, work schedules, family details, commuting patterns. They could use the tracker feature to tell when they had come under suspicion so that they could go dark and change up their pattern. Want to know where to find the highest concentration of red-headed sex workers in the Midwest? What about the least patrolled highways in the Pacific Northwest? How about which nurses in Florida are registered gun owners and which are not? The AGR app can supply you with all this information, if you can find it. Of course, it's unlikely it will ever appear under the AGR moniker again, and it's doubtful the software we tested would ever be released as a standalone app. Gomez suggested that the code I uncovered will probably be bundled deep within a separate software package, unknowingly acquired by a third-party vendor and passed on through acquisitions and mergers. The big concern these days is Stego malware. Malicious scripts buried within subfolders of subfolders. That means this software could already be out there. Like an unchecked tumor, lurking in the deepest source code of your social media, disseminating itself through your vacation videos, birthday memes, your music stream, or even your dating app. It may have already installed a rootkit in your operating system to avoid detection. I've texted McKenna about my discovery. I've left voice messages, but she hasn't been returning my calls or showing up to the lab. It's been a week since her date, but nobody's heard from her. I don't know where she went for dinner or what movie she saw, since her date had insisted that they be a surprise. A smart tactic to make a potential victim difficult to track. If McKenna ever mentioned his name, I don't recall. Or I wasn't listening. A few times a day now, I log into the dating app. Scroll through my matches until I find McKenna and press the poke button. She has yet to poke me back. All that remains is her online profile, metadata, and match statistics. But there are always more searches, more matches, more social apps to post your personal information, aren't there? New interfaces and databases where we can search by name, by category, most recent, most viewed. In time, I may not even remember McKenna as she was, but only as she presented herself in her various profiles. I will remember her by her keywords, by the web images I downloaded. I will forget how different we were. I will only remember how well-matched we appeared to be on a dating site. I will forget that it took days of manipulating the algorithm 
to generate that match. I will keep searching, because there seems to be no end to the app. In fact, there's still one on my laptop. I made a backup of the AGR code before handing the original over to the FBI. I don't plan to share the code or post it. I will never sell it, not at any price, so don't even bother asking. And once I'm finished with it, I plan to destroy it. I've kept it for only one purpose. To see if I can track down the guy McKenna was meeting for her date. After all, he was a grad student in our area. He must have enrolled at our university, if not our program. That makes it likely that he was also part of the AGR study. If I can find him, then maybe I can find McKenna. Every day, I'll check the app in case she responds to my poke. I'll scour every new media platform to see if she resurfaces somewhere else. It will take a lot of work. But with the right algorithm, I think I can do it. Until then, her pictures and profiles are the only evidence she ever existed. I'm starting to understand her better now. Constructing a life on social media is not the same as living a life. But it is proof that one must live. With every social media post, McKenna was asserting that she was alive. That she had been alive. Because once you're gone, what's left? Don't let that story discourage you from using apps and online services. Not all of them are so... uh, deadly. In fact, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about a decidedly helpful and efficient and non-deadly service for e-commerce businesses. ShipStation. A new year is full of possibilities, but when your e-commerce business is dealing with gift returns, late deliveries, and a mountain of customer emails, you can feel stuck. I know what it's like to try to grow an e-business. Shipping would be a nightmare without the help of a service like ShipStation. You've probably heard me talk about ShipStation in the past. At the start of a brand new year, it's the perfect time to get off the fence and give ShipStation a try. It's so quick and easy to set up, and with our promo code, you get two full months to try it. I'd say it's the best resolution you can make in 2023. ShipStation works with all your favorite places to sell online, including Amazon, Etsy, eBay, Shopify, and more. 
Manage every order from one simple dashboard, automate routine shipping tasks, print shipping labels, and easily compare rates and delivery times to optimize every shipment. With the best discounts in the industry, you'll never wonder if you're getting the best rates. And get this, you can get up to 86% off USPS and UPS rates. Make the new year your best year and grow your business with ShipStation. Use promo code NOSLEEP today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code NOSLEEP. And now, it's time to get back to the horror. Let's go deep for this one. In our final tale, we meet a woman who, despite barely knowing her, is invited to an old acquaintance's funeral. Already feeling awkward being there, the situation is made stranger when the deceased's sister gives the woman a box of old cassette tapes. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Leo Harrison, when she listens to the tapes, she learns disturbing secrets about what happened one summer at a very unique summer camp. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Kristen DiMercurio, and Tanya Milosevic. So, as we'll learn, some secrets are buried deep. Some are difficult to fully uncover. That is, unless you're willing to go underground. On December 10, 2000, first responders flooded the parking lot of an abandoned strip mall off Highway 385 in Pennington County, South Dakota. In the early hours of the morning, it was said a real estate surveyor had discovered a corpse on the premises and dialed 911. Details came out gradually, fed to the local community in fragments over the course of the following days. A young woman, as of yet unidentified, her body had been curled awkwardly in a corner of a derelict cafe where she had attempted to take refuge from the elements during the previous night's rainstorm. She had evidently been wandering several days in the wilderness, as her clothes were besmirched with grass, dirt, thorns, and bits of twigs, her body malnourished and emaciated. It was inferred from a set of nearby tracks that she must have traveled southwest from Sheridan Lake, close to the site of some hiking trails and an abandoned summer camp. Why this was, and what she had been doing there, no one could tell. It was not considered unusual for bodies to turn up in and around Black Hills National Forest. Every now and then, campers and hikers would inevitably get lost on the trails, growing disoriented before finally vanishing into the depths of the wilderness, only to be found dead months later, if at all. Some would accidentally stumble off the side of a cliff, perhaps dying instantly, perhaps bleeding out for hours and dying slowly. Others would simply starve to death or succumb to elemental exposure. Others yet would find themselves mauled by a predatory animal, or perhaps stabbed by some insane vagrant wandering the area. The incident of December 10th, however, was unique among such instances. The young woman in the abandoned mall had not died from starvation, exposure, dehydration, or any of the other common causes. 
The coroner instead speculated in his report that she had likely experienced a nervous breakdown after becoming lost in the woods, then suffered a heart attack from the sheer panic induced by her situation. Some people twist this around to say that she died of fright, that she witnessed something so horrific in the forest of the Black Hills it caused her heart to fail. But most commentators agree this is only hearsay, an urban legend. The young woman was eventually identified as one Lucille Mason, a mentally unstable college dropout and resident of Wyoming who had been passing through the area. When asked about Mason's reasons for visiting Black Hills National Forest by herself, and in the middle of a harsh winter, those who knew her admitted they had neither seen nor spoken to Lucille in years, and that they had no idea what she had been doing out there. The story was quick to saturate the whispered folklore of rural South Dakota, eventually spreading beyond Pennington County and into the surrounding regions. It soon became something of an obsession among amateur researchers who sought paranormal explanations for Lucille's strange death. To this day, obscure websites on UFO phenomena still claim that Lucille was an abductee and try to link her story to a broader history of abductions that have allegedly taken place in and around Black Hills National Forest. Others claim she was a victim of a government experiment and cite an implausible web of esoteric theories to support this interpretation. But most commentators agree she was only a troubled individual with a history of mental illness who became disoriented in the woods and met with a tragic end. Though I had not considered myself particularly close to Lucille Mason, I was nonetheless invited to her funeral that December in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The service was held in a small Presbyterian cemetery on the outskirts of town. We convened afterwards at the family home, an old Victorian which had been left to Lucille and her sister following the deaths of their parents. I stayed later into the night than I had meant to, waiting for the snow to die down, and found myself... I don't remember how, wandering the halls in a weird trance. I turned a corner on the first story and saw that the door to Lucille's room was halfway open, a sliver of light shining through the crevice. I could hear crying from within. I made the rather impulsive decision to push lightly on the door and look inside. Her sister Melissa was on the edge of the mattress, her head in her hands. Boxes of Lucille's things were sitting on the floor, some of them overturned haphazardly, their contents strewn about. Yearbooks, CDs, jewelry, paperback novels, a few childhood toys. <laughs> Melissa stared at me with a look of vague recollection. We had not seen each other for almost a decade. She had been around 14 or 15 at that time. Now she was almost 31 and hardly recognizable. It did not help that her features were obscured by running mascara. I expected her to turn me away and had almost shut the door when she invited me in. I did as she asked and stood in silence while she tried to gain composure. Searching for something to occupy herself, she went about collecting Lucille's things from the floor and putting them back inside their boxes which I imagined she had knocked over. 
perhaps in a fit of rage. You were a good friend of Lucille's. I wasn't sure how to answer the statement. Lucille and I had met in our freshman year of high school. We had maintained a shallow friendship for a time, but hadn't spoken to each other since the 11th grade, when the Masons had moved away to Wyoming. Years had passed since then, and I had hardly even thought of her until receiving the invitation to her funeral. Yes. It was all I could manage to say in response. We were good friends. Melissa was on the verge of saying something else when she came to a halt, distracted by a tattered plush doll she had picked up from the floor. Forgetting my existence, she rose slowly to her feet and drifted to a leather chair beside a floor lamp. I saw her features illuminated, and only just now noticed the truly abysmal state that she was in. Unnaturally pale and gaunt, it almost looked as if she had been starving herself. She seemed transfixed by her sister's little toy rabbit. I remember it was covered in coffee stains and missing one of its black, beady eyes. I was about to excuse myself from the room when she looked up at me, trying, failing, to suppress a sob. Take these things away from me! I'm sorry? She wouldn't have wanted me to cling to her belongings. If she could have known how horrible I would feel just staring at them. You should take them away from me. Take all of it. Keep it. Sell it. Burn it. I don't care. Just make it go away, please. She was so distressed in that moment, I would have done almost anything to make it stop. I did not bother trying to calm her down or reason with her. I left that night with Lucille's belongings sliding around the trunk of my 93 Dodge Dynasty. I sometimes wish I hadn't. Those boxes sat in my attic for years unopened, untouched, shoved into a dark corner with the memory of Lucille Mason herself. It wasn't until one morning in October 2005 that I finally rooted through them while preparing for an eBay sale. The contents didn't faze me like they had fazed Melissa. I sifted through them cynically, indifferently, looking to see if I couldn't make a quick dollar off them. However, there wasn't much of anything to put up for sale. Most of her possessions either showed significant wear or were simply too worthless to bother with. One exception was an old cassette player buried at the bottom of a box of pulp fantasy books and music magazines. It was a miracle the old thing even worked when I plugged it in. I set it up in my living room and hit play, listening to the whir of the internal mechanism. A few more hours rifling around and I stumbled across Lucille's tapes in a separate box. Rather than a collection of albums or audiobooks, what I instead discovered was a set of blank audio cassettes. Maxwell Normal Bias U90s with handwritten labels. 
Each was marked with a date, beginning November 1999 and ending March 2000, just months before Lucille's death. I inserted the tape marked November 21st, 1999 and pressed play. November 21st, 1999. A bitter, cold day. The sun is out of sight. The AC unit is broken again, so I'm sitting here in layers, and the landlord isn't answering the phone as usual. Personally, I can't tolerate the idea that my thoughts are important enough to document, not even for my own alleged benefit. Seems pretentious to me. But then I guess the idea is to document them because they are important rather to vent or something like that. Dr. Levitt spewed some BS about containing my issues somewhere. Some kind of self-help crap. Huh. Someone's knocking. Um, guessing it must be maintenance. November 28th, 1999. Had that nightmare again? The one with the shed? I'm standing in this deserted field in some remote, isolated space. A familiar place, but one I can't recall the name of. I start to walk towards the shed. Just as I'm about to enter, I wake up, and I always feel terrified afterwards. Nothing ever changes. It's always exactly the same. Been having it for close to a year now. Sometimes when I think of it for too long, it triggers an episode as Dr. Levitt calls it. My grades have been slipping lately. I can't find the motivation to show up to classes or study. I, I got a D on my last exam. That's a first. I tried to study earlier today, but I couldn't stop thinking about the nightmare. That image of the shed standing in that empty field is seared into my waking thoughts. And that awful feeling of terror that's attached to it, that feeling of pure fear and anxiety. I can't make it stop. No matter what I do, I don't know how to make it stop. I will not attempt to recollect and transcribe the contents of the next tape, which seemed only to consist, from what I could bear to listen to, of incoherent sobbing and screaming. In retrospect, it seems easy to recognize that this recording must have captured one of the so-called episodes Lucille had mentioned in the tape of November 28, 1999. Deciding that I had heard quite enough, I packed up the tape collection and stowed it away in a closet. The following evening, I decided I would try to reach out to Melissa Mason, tell her I had discovered a collection of recordings which her sister had left behind and that I would be more than happy to mail them. I wouldn't mention the awful things I'd heard. Some digging on the internet gave me an address and landline for one Melissa Mason in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I called the number the next morning, only to hear a voice on the other end that I did not recognize. When I mentioned Melissa Mason, the stranger fell silent, before explaining that Melissa no longer lived at the address. She had been killed, in fact, about a year before, inexplicably bludgeoned in her sleep by an unidentified intruder. She had spent weeks in a coma before finally passing away one evening in June 2003. I was speaking to her former landlord. 
Taken aback, I mumbled my thanks to the old woman and hung up the phone. With Lucille's parents and only sister long dead, that left no inheritor. At least not as far as I knew. The tapes sat in my closet for months. I kept telling myself I would get rid of them one day. But something within me did not want to part with them. The idea felt wrong somehow. I managed to forget about them for a time, until one scorching July day, routing around my closet in search of a missing box fan, I rediscovered the cassette player and the tape collection. Resolving to finally throw the tapes away and consign the entire thing to memory, I set them out on my kitchen counter and planned to toss them the next morning. But somehow it never happened. I couldn't bring myself to destroy the last remnants of Lucille's existence. She and her immediate family were gone, and apart from some photos scattered here and there on the internet, these tapes were all that remained of who she really was. I left them untouched for a few more days until later one evening, and under the slight influence of alcohol, I ended up giving into a buried sense of curiosity. I plugged the cassette player in, chose the tape dated December 15th, 1999, and pressed play. December 15th, 1999. Today, I decided to finish going through the boxes that mom and dad left behind after the accident. There was one I'd been meaning to go through, a box of the photo books. I'd been putting it off because I'd assumed it would be too painful. Mom was an obsessive documentarian, so of course there were reams upon reams of leather-bound Polaroid albums, starting with Melissa's birth in 1969 and ending around 1996, just a few months before Mom and Dad passed away. One book in particular caught my eye. A crude label on the spine read M and L, Summer 88. I opened it up and started picking through the pages, which had been welded together by the residue of dried coffee, I found myself smiling at the photos of Melissa and I playing in the yard at our family's old house. In most of the photos, Melissa was teaching me how to do something or another. I was around six or seven years old at the time, just learning to ride my bike and shoot basketball and all that. Around halfway through the photo book, the subject matter changed abruptly. Melissa was nowhere to be seen. It was nothing but photos of myself, taken in some strange, unrecognizable place. One picture showed me standing in a parking lot near the edge of a forest. It almost resembled the head of a hiking trail in a national park. A sign was visible in the corner of the shop. It read, Shady Pines Summer Camp. The next photos showed me interacting with children whom I can't remember ever having seen or met. One of these photos stood out in particular. I was seated in a group with about a dozen other children inside a forested clearing. Barely visible in the distant background was an old, rundown shed. It was identical to the one in my recurring nightmare. December 20th. It's been almost a week since I discovered the photo book. I'm still 
still at a loss to make sense of it. I have no recollection of ever having attended a summer camp in the year 1988. I do not remember a single one of the smiling faces that appear alongside mine in those rainy Polaroid photographs. How could I have simply forgotten an entire summer? And, and then there's that one detail. That rundown shed in the background of the group portrait, the one from my nightmare, it's identical. I keep telling myself that what I'm seeing is only a coincidence, that I'm just focusing on that detail because of a pattern recognition bias, but something about it seems so wrong. I... I can't stop thinking about it. celebrate New Year's Eve. I haven't been able to leave the house much lately. Recently, it's become more difficult to interact with other people. Transcripts came back from the fall semester. My GPA dropped three points from last spring. I'm disqualified from my scholarship. I have to retake two classes. I still don't know what went wrong. It feels as if I totally lost control. Far worse than I ever have before. Anyways, I've been distraught ever since I saw the transcript. Completely distraught. It's been difficult to get out of bed most days. I've been drinking a lot more too. Usually by myself. Sometimes at dive bars downtown. When I have the energy to get up and do something, I find myself rooting around my parents' boxes, looking for more information about that summer camp. Shady Pines Summer Camp. The more I repeat that name, the more it seems to stir something in me. I wasn't able to find any other record of the trip. Seems the old photo book is all there is. But I did find something while I was browsing the internet at the public library. There's not much information about it online, but apparently there was indeed a Shady Pine summer camp in Black Hills National Forest, Pennington County, South Dakota, near Sheridan Lake. It's now defunct, but evidently it used to be some kind of a sleepaway camp for children aged K through eight. I stayed at the library until midnight, trying to find as much information as possible. Unfortunately, there's not very much out there as the camp was actually sued into oblivion. A lot of official information wound up suppressed somehow. I don't know, really. There's a lot of mystery and ambiguity surrounding the place, it looks like. I can only find a handful of news stories here and there. An announcement of the grand opening, a few promo pieces. Also, a couple articles from national sources recounting the details of the lawsuit. Some sort of accident involving a kid who was harmed by an employee. The details are all rather vague. January 5th, 2000. Dr. Levitt says that he's concerned about my recent behavior. 
that I don't sound like myself and that I seem to be focusing all of my attention on irrelevant things when I should be focusing on preparing to improve and change course for the spring semester. He started talking medication again. I told him I don't need any pills, like I always tell him. I told him about the photo book too, about the shed, about shady pines. He agreed that it was odd that perhaps something painful had happened during my time there. He told me to be careful of focusing on it too much, that I should hold off and focus on other things, save the introspection for the consulting room. He said he thinks it might inflame my obsessive tendencies if I delve further. I agreed at the time. But I can't pull myself away now. January 8th. I stayed up late reading the articles I brought home from the library. Many of them were unremarkable. Mostly just press releases and puffy articles announcing the opening of Shady Pine Summer Camp in 81. I learned that the camp had been funded by a generous grant from a group known as the Appleseed Foundation and established in early 1981 as a retreat for, quote, gifted K-8 children suffering from conflicts in social integration. I think everything in that statement would have applied to my younger self, except for the gifted part. The camp brought in steady business for the next decade, touting its scenic surroundings and staff of well-credentialed mentors drawn from the best counseling programs and psychiatric think tanks. All in all, it seems like it would have been awfully expensive to send your kid there for an entire summer, a detail which baffled me, considering my parents struggled to meet their mortgage payments, paid for practically everything on credit cards, and bought melanized clothes and Christmas presents from the car down the street. The last few articles that I read at the library were published around 1991 and 1992, near the time of the camp's closure. These articles came from national news sources and detailed the controversy and subsequent lawsuit surrounding the accidental death of a camper in summer of 1990. A young boy had suffocated to death on the premises, having been left confined for more than 24 hours in a small airtight trunk behind the camp's medical unit. Though the fine details of the lawsuit were kept quiet, it was easily discerned that the jury had sided with the prosecution's claim of criminal negligence. In the end, the parents received $50 million from the so-called Appleseed Foundation, and a former camp employee wound up in prison. The camp shut down for good in 1992, its reputation obviously destroyed by the lawsuit and all the negative press surrounding it. The former employee who wound up in prison was a deeply disturbed individual. His sentence was reduced on claims of insanity. By all accounts, he seemed to suffer from dissociative identity disorder, as it's called these days. He would switch between different personalities, each of which demonstrated no conscious knowledge of the others. He actually claimed a few years later, after he'd been treated, that the different personalities belonged to spirits which had possessed him. He said it was the spirit of Ormond Crow, the notorious child killer, which had made him do that terrible thing in 1990. The entire story is really weird. January 15th, 2000. Today I went on another online search. A lot of the search results only turned up this useless, nonsensical, conspiracy-type stuff. Some eccentric character, uh, Henry Barlow, I think his name is, 
put out a book a few years ago about the history of UFO sightings in Black Hills National Forest and how he believes this somehow has something to do with the U.S. government and this thing called Operation Paperclip and how that is somehow connected to Shaden Pines. And I... I really don't know, to be honest. The guy rambles and draws a lot of strange connections between things. He keeps saying how there were these people who would go missing in the 50s and 60s and show up on the side of the highway in South Dakota months later, raving about how they'd been recruited for a program where people would use their abilities to attract and contact ghosts. I'm not joking. Ghosts. This, according to Henry Barlow's wild imagination, has something to do with Shady Pines, somehow. Suffice it to say, his so-called theories aren't all that useful to me. Anyways, I gave up looking for information online, but was able to track down an interesting book on the shelves of the Cheyenne Public Library, A Comprehensive Tourist's Guide to Black Hills National Forest. I'm thumbing through it now. Goes over all of the major trails, the flora and fauna of the region, full of photos. I'm hoping it might stir my memory. It's 4 a.m. and I'm sitting on my apartment's fire escape, smoking my third cigarette in a row and looking out over the south side of the city. I can see the freight yards of Union Pacific Station. There's a cargo train just in. It's been sitting there a couple hours now. I can't sleep tonight. After I put away that book on Black Hills National Forest, I drifted off and had the most god-awful nightmare. Nothing about the contents of the nightmare was that bad, just how I felt after waking. I've been up ever since, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about the nightmare. It was the shed dream again, only this time, instead of ending just before I opened the door and stepped inside, the dream kept going. I could feel everything just as if I were actually right there in the cool darkness of the night in some isolated rural area standing outside the shed. I could feel my hand gripping the doorknob. could hear the creak of the hinges and feel the, the musty stifled air inside that little room. I could smell the mildew and the mold. I had the sense that someone was beside me, guiding me, although I couldn't see them in the darkness. We walked for a few yards by the light of a lantern and arrived at a cramped corner. The stranger lifted up some of the floorboards. Underneath was a hatch penetrating the foundation. It, it almost resembled the door to a bomb shelter you'd see in some Cold War-era backyard bunker. The stranger turned the hatch's wheel and lifted it up. A ladder disappeared into the darkness of a tunnel that led God knows how many feet below ground. That was when I awoke. I heard my neighbor knocking at the front door. When I opened the door and asked her what was wrong, she said she'd heard me screaming. She was worried I was being attacked, she said.
January 20th. I was walking home today, taking the scenic route through the historic district, when I decided to hang a raft down an alley containing a few interesting out-of-the-way establishments. A tattoo parlor, an antique furniture store, and an occult bookshop. I made the impulsive decision to check out the antique store and see if I couldn't find something interesting to lift the mood in my apartment and maybe get my mind off things. But I stopped before I could reach the antique store. Something in the bookseller's display had caught my eye. It was one of the, the books sitting on the middle shelf of the rack. The cover consisted of five symbols arranged in a row against a faded saffron background. I stood transfixed by this for what must have been a solid 10 or 15 minutes just staring. I had seen these symbols somewhere. They were, from left to right, a circle, a cross, a set of three curved lines running parallel, a square, and a star, each enclosed within a rectangular frame. I didn't wake from my trance until a clerk stepped outside and asked in a concerned tone what it was I wanted. She had been watching me for several minutes and had probably suspected something was wrong with me. Without thinking, I immediately asked if I could thumb through the book in the display. She agreed and invited me in. I flipped to a random page and read a few lines. Quote, in the initial period of his research, Ryan's most promising subject was Adam Lindsmayer, an undergraduate at Duke. Ryan and his research team found that Lindsmayer's results were below chance, even scoring 100% accuracy on one reading. However, Lindsmayer's accuracy gradually diminished over time. Some have attributed this to Lindsmayer's increasing boredom or exhaustion, while others have cited it as evidence of Ryan's findings on telepathy being products of coincidence. I continued flipping through this book until I landed on a full-page photograph. It was a picture showing some sort of experiment conducted in the early 20th century. Two men, one middle-aged, another much younger, were seated at a table in an academic setting, while several onlookers gathered around, some scribbling notes as they watched. Five cards were lying face-up on the table, each one containing one of the mysterious symbols that had first caught my attention. The caption read, 1931, Joseph Banks Ryan analyzes the results of Adam Lindsmayer's reading. The famous Zenner cards are displayed face up before them. The book is sitting on my shelf now. I don't particularly care about the contents, only those symbols. The quote unquote Zenner cards, as they're called in the book. Evidently, they were used in a series of studies that took place in the 1930s and 40s. The researchers involved with these experiments went on to claim that their findings were evidence supporting the reality of telepathy, telekinesis, clairvoyance, and other paranormal abilities. When I first arrived home from the store, I stared at those five symbols for hours, trying to remember where it was I knew them from. I couldn't figure out just why I was so transfixed by them. Something about them seemed magnetic in a word I couldn't pull myself away I swallowed some allergy medicine and a couple glasses of wine to help me forget and fall asleep only to wake up just an hour later I had dreamt about the Zenner cards I was very young no older than six I think seated in a nondescript room somewhere under fluorescent light 
surrounded by several strange people. I thought I recognized one of them as a substitute teacher I'd had for a month in first grade. On the table in front of me, I could see a row of five cards turned face down. One of the adults in the room asked me what sequence of cards I was seeing in my mind's eye. He wrote my responses on a notepad and turned over the cards one by one. There were the five familiar symbols printed on each card. We did this several times. At the end, I overheard the adults whispering something about being admitted to the program. That's when I woke up. I laid in bed, staring at the ceiling for several hours, then came out here for a smoke. I don't know what to make of that dream, whether it was just something conjured up by my imagination or some forgotten memory. I really don't know. I've been keeping a dream diary. A journal of drawings inspired by my dreams. It's a method I came up with to capture and record my memories of Shady Pine Summer Camp. For weeks now, I've been having these extremely vivid but fragmented dreams about my time at the camp. Just little broken images of dislocated memories that seemed to come out of nowhere. The face of a kid I knew, or a certain board game they had in the rec room, or a hiking trip we took. I made this habit of just rolling out of bed as soon as the dream is over and sketching what I remember. I don't know what to make of it. I just keep going, hoping it will add up. Perhaps this sounds insane, but I've been considering making a trip out to South Dakota at some point so that I can see Shady Pines. I know from my reading that the property is still intact. For some reason, they never tore it down, and I know more or less where it's located near the coast of Sheridan Lake, off of one of the trails that run through the area. I feel drawn there, like physically drawn, as if something is calling me there, pulling me in like a magnet. And I have this strange notion that the only way to end my fixation is to hike out to that abandoned camp in the forest of South Dakota and see it for myself. I don't have my own car, of course, but I think I can get round-trip tickets through the Greyhound system. I can take some food, some maps of the trails, a knife, protect myself, and I can be there and back again in the course of just a few days. Maybe it sounds crazy. I don't know. But I'm willing to do almost anything to get closure. That was where Lucille's tape collection ended. I really didn't have the slightest idea what to make of her story, whether I should do anything with the information I now possessed. It seemed clear to me that she had vanished from Cheyenne and visited Black Hills National Forest in a confused, misguided attempt to reconcile herself with some sort of vaguely remembered trauma involving the defunct camp where she had spent a single summer of her childhood. And it was there, on December 10th, 2000, that she had lost her mind completely, dying of a heart attack after fleeing from the camp and wandering several days alone in the woods. I assumed I was the only person in existence who knew about this link between the sight of Lucille Mason's death and the mysterious recollections which had plagued her in her final months alive. With every immediate relation of Lucille's being long dead, 
I couldn't think of anyone whom I might reach out to with this information. There was no use telling the authorities. It wasn't as if I had discovered evidence of foul play. Just a psychological motive in a case that had long been closed and unequivocally deemed an accidental death. No. Rather than make any attempt to revive the specter of Lucille's sad short life, I simply let it go, choosing to give her troubled spirit a rest and consign my discovery to the same corner of my mind where I kept everything that was best left forgotten. Somehow, sooner or later, the tapes wound up in the trash, carried off to rot in a garbage heap somewhere. This, however, did not mean that sometimes, driving alone on a dark night or lying awake in bed with a bout of insomnia, I didn't occasionally recall Lucille's story and replay the entire thing in my head. There were details which I would never be able to move on from. The strange nightmares... The memories of the Zenner cards, as they were called. The night terrors she had experienced. What had it all meant? What exactly had taken place at this defunct sleepaway camp in the backwoods of Pennington County, South Dakota? Had Lucille's strange, fragmented memories been at all legitimate? Or were they merely the workings of delusion? One day late in November of 2009, I was traveling up through South Dakota on a business trip. I got laid over waiting for an Amtrak and had to come up with a way to pass the time. As I was leaving the train station to visit a bar I'd heard good things about, I stopped beside a map in the lobby. The moment I saw the words Black Hills National Forest printed across the topography of the state's southwestern region, a wave of chills came over me. I hadn't even realized until now that I was only 15 miles from Shady Pine Summer Camp. I decided I would go try to see it before my train arrived. It wasn't that far of a drive out to the trailhead after all, and my curiosity was piqued. I boarded a bus going southwest and arrived in Black Hills National Forest before I knew it. I bought a map at a kiosk and began walking. I didn't really know what I was expecting to get out of the journey. I certainly started to question the decision as I made my way down the trail, into the darkness of the forest. It was a cold day in the middle of winter, so there was pretty much no one else around. Just me, all alone, with only a knife to protect myself. I kept going regardless. The path ahead became narrower, darker, and denser the closer I came to the region where the camp was allegedly located. I guess that no one had really bothered to maintain this particular stretch of the trail since the camp's closure in the early 1990s. There were long, gnarled branches blocking many parts of the path, and sometimes they were bad enough that I actually had to cut them down or crouch just to get beyond them. It was almost early dusk when I finally reached an especially unkempt part of the trail that gave way to an expanse of clearing. There, in a field of dead grass, were the overgrown remnants of Shady Pine Summer Camp. It was as humble as I had expected. Just a few wood cabins and a small playground on the edge of the property. 
I lingered there for a short moment and seriously considered turning around. From the looks of it, the old camp seemed like the kind of place where squatters would probably get up to trouble. I could see crushed beer cans and cigarette butts littering the ground, indicating that someone had been there recently. Yet, when I thought again of the time and money I'd invested in coming to this place, I decided I may as well keep moving forward. Why not? I passed through the playgrounds first. It was nothing remarkable. Just a couple rusty swing sets, some wooden forts, and a rainbow-colored merry-go-round spinning slowly in the wind, creaking as it went. I moved beyond the playground into the commons area. I took a moment to briefly examine all the different buildings on the property. There were the medical unit, the mess hall, the classroom, and the dormitory, more or less as they would have appeared when Lucille Mason visited in the summer of 1988. I found nothing especially interesting inside any of these buildings. Only a collection of deserted, vermin-infested little rooms, pervaded throughout by the nauseating stench of mold and mildew. I was about to head out and get back on the trail when I finally saw it. Through a window in the dormitory, I had a good view of the camp's north end. A barren expanse of grass ran maybe 20 or 30 yards before giving way to pine woods. On the very edge of this field was a small dilapidated shed. The same one which had plagued Lucille in her nightmares. Dusk was getting near by the time I stepped out into the field and started to approach the shed. Even though I knew it would be dangerous to remain here any longer, I couldn't help moving forward. After everything I had learned, all the vague, mysterious details that had plagued me for so many years since discovering Lucille's tapes, after all that, I knew I had no other choice than to go as far as I possibly could. In hindsight, I was not fully aware at the time of just how deep and unconscious a fixation had brought me to this point. The door to the shed was already ajar. I gave it a nudge. What remained of the sunlight poured into the room as the door swung open easily. There was almost nothing in there. Just a few empty wooden crates and a table in the corner where someone must have kept their gardening tools once upon a time. I thought of the dream in which Lucille had remembered finding a hatch beneath the floorboards. That was when I noticed a series of floorboards in the northwest corner, which looked as if they were oddly aligned. Pressing on them, I found they weren't completely nailed down. I easily stripped them away one by one. At first it was difficult to tell what was beneath those floorboards. In the growing darkness, I had to take off my backpack and dig around for my flashlight. When I finally found it and pointed it into the hole, I was met with the sight of a large metal hatch. If I was going to get it open, the only way would be to go down there, under the floorboards. I lowered myself down, shone my light on the hatch, and took a good look. 
There was a wheel in the center of the hatch. I gave it a turn, or at least tried to. It seemed that decades worth of rust corrosion had all but locked up the gears. It took about a quarter of an hour, but I finally managed to force it open. I lifted the hatch and looked inside. The tunnel must have extended at least 40 feet below ground. There had evidently been a ladder once, leading to the bottom, but it had long since fallen apart. Only the first 10 or 15 feet remained. I could see the remnants of the ladder strewn about the tile floor at the bottom of the tunnel. I would have needed a rope and a pulley to get down there, the kind that cave explorers and mountaineers use. As it was, I could not go any further. In a sort of trance, I closed the hatch, hoisted myself up, packed my things, and retraced my steps down the trail. Darkness had fallen. I moved quickly. I remember feeling very afraid, whether due to something I had seen at the camp or the fact I was alone at night on a trail in the middle of nowhere. I really can't recall. Everything about that night is disorienting to remember. Like a half-forgotten dream. I just recall that I wanted to get out of there and back to the city as fast as possible. Before I knew it, I was back at the train station. I found myself unable to sleep during the overnight train ride. Memories of what I had seen replayed themselves without end as I watched the passing landscape, the dense pine woods and rolling foothills of rural South Dakota, hiding God knows how many secrets. For many years, I had felt somehow detached and distanced from the contents of Lucille's tapes. But now I understood it was real. All of it. I couldn't stop wondering what had happened to Lucille in that strange subterranean complex buried beneath the remnants of Shady Pine Summer Camp. I couldn't stop wondering why the floors of that underground room had been crafted from the sort of tile you only see in a hospital or a laboratory, when every other structure in the camp had been built from cheap wood. I couldn't stop wondering what Lucille had seen when she visited the camp that day in December 2000. What it was that had caused her to break down, lose her sanity, and die of fright. I am grateful to say I will never know for sure. have ended. Are you feeling all right? We did our best to give you a fright. You may feel safe in the bright sunlight, but soon, once again, you'll be sleepless tonight. 
The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. If you would like to find out how you can hear the extended editions of our program, please visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn about our season pass program. 25 episodes, each over two hours long, and three exclusive bonus episodes, all for only $25. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for joining us and for being sleepless tonight. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.